And so, when they said stay at home, they weren't joking. Fancy trips to France and other foreign parts are off until next year. So let's stay at home in Scotland and have the most perfect holiday in the world. Fly me to Dunoon. When we're allowed to travel beyond the Garden Gate, of course. for the return of former First Minister Alex Salmond. Kate Forbes unveils what she calls Scotland's most important budget. And Nicola Sturgeon tells Boris Johnson to work from home in Westminster. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. This is our time when we can, each in our own way, be the light that ensures the darkness can never return. We remember the Holocaust. Matanba, Fiskama. The former First Minister, Alex Hammond, will appear before a Holyrood Inquiry Committee next month. Agreement has been reached for the session to be held on Tuesday, the 9th of February. The committee is investigating the government's handling of sexual misconduct complaints against Alex Hammond. He's the biggest name yet to appear, but Nicola Sturgeon will take top billing the following week. Mr Salmon's allies claim he's under attack from the government he used to lead. Ms Sturgeon has already said on this programme such conspiracy theories are a nonsense. Let's talk about the Alex Salmond case. Your predecessor and former friend has said that your account of this is, and I quote, simply untrue, manifestly untrue, untenable. Parliament has been repeatedly misled. What did you think when you saw those words? Um, I don't accept that, and I will refute that uh, vigorously. Look, questions have been raised about my handling of Uh, sexual harassment claims made about my predecessor. It's right that I am properly scrutinised on that. I had hoped that I would be before the committee conducting this inquiry on Tuesday this week. Unfortunately, that's been delayed by a couple of weeks. But I'll sit before that committee and I will refute all of those accusations and I will set out uh, my account of what Mm. happened, given the very difficult situation that I faced. And and people can make their own judgments on that. But what I will never do, what I will never do is a apologise for doing everything I could to make sure that claims, uh, complaints about sexual harassment uh, were investigated, that they weren't simply swept under the carpet because of the seniority and the powerful position of the person who was subject to them. Your spokesman said that Mr Salmond is, and I quote, spinning false conspiracy theories. Do you agree with your spokesman? Well, what I do uh, certainly sometimes reflect on is that at times I appear to be simultaneously accused of colluding with Mr Salmon to somehow cover up uh, accusations Mm. of sexual harassment on the one hand and then on the other hand of being part of some dastardly conspiracy to bring him down. Neither of those things Sorry, do you agree with your own spokesperson that he is spinning false conspiracy theories or not? There are false conspiracy theories being spun about this, and in that... Coming from Alex Salmond. Well, look, by Alex Salmond, by people around him, you can draw your own conclusions around that. But what I would say is this, what is forgotten in all of that are the women who brought forward these complaints. Now, you know, I 
at the time I became aware of all of this, just tried hard not to interfere with what was going on and not to do anything that would see these swept aside rather than properly investigating. Now, the Scottish government made mistakes in the investigation of that, and that's part of mm. the subject of the inquiry. Mm. But I didn't collude with Alex Hammond, and I didn't conspire against him. But when I get All the right. opportunity, which I've been waiting a long time on now, uh, to sit in front of this committee, then I can set out these things fully. It's right, as First well, then, Minister, then, I was faced with a difficult decision, then I have, then I have give some... me a free pass. It's right that I'm properly scrutinised on that. Then I have some good news, because we can follow this a little bit further, because at the centre of all of this is the question about what you knew and when you knew it about the allegations against Mr Salmond. You said that you first found out when he told you at a meeting at your house on the 2nd of April 2018. But we now know that there was a meeting four days earlier in your parliamentary office where the issues were discussed. And you then said you'd forgotten about this meeting. Can you therefore now take the opportunity to explain to people quite clearly what you knew? When did you first know about the allegations? Just tell people. Alex Alex Hammond told me about uh, the allegations against him on the 2nd of April in my house. Look, I am going to go into this with the committee. With the greatest of respect, Andrew, I'm not going to get into the weeds of this with you in a a short interview. I've set out some of this in my written evidence to the committee and I'm going to uh, set that out in oral evidence to the committee when I get the opportunity. Um, I'm very happy to do that, but let's not forget... I'm I'm uh, sorry to interrupt you, Alec, uh, but I don't think this is the weeds. I think this is central to it. Let me try another question. Your husband, who's the chief executive of the SNP, gave evidence to the inquiry last month, and he was asked about text messages to other SNP officials which talk about pressurising the police over this case. And he said the language is inappropriate, but he did done nothing and he wasn't involved in the conspiracy. But he also said that there were no other text <laughs> messages of that nature. Is that true? Uh, there, there are no uh, messages that are relevant to this committee's inquiry. The text messages that you referred to there were, uh, as I understand it, the day after Alex Salmond was charged with serious offences. The point he made was that everybody's emotions were running uh, really high that day. You've just said to me something like uh, he said he wasn't involved in the conspiracy. There was no conspiracy. Complaints came forward here. They had to be investigated. It's right that there's scrutiny into how those of us confronted with this handled that. But that's what the Committee of Inquiry is for. And I will sit uh, in front of that Committee of Inquiry and I will answer these questions in the appropriate way and I'll show due respect to it. It's anticipated the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, will appear before the committee a week later on February the 16th. Now, it's the most important budget since the Parliament came back to Scotland. That's how the Finance Secretary, Kate Forbes, is billing her statement to Holyrood. There will be no change to income tax rates and local authorities will get incentives to freeze the council tax. The Finance Secretary is pledging extra funding for jobs and skills as part of her exceptional response to the pandemic. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Today's budget comes almost a year after the first case of COVID-19 was notified in Scotland. The pandemic has shaken our society and our economy to the core. Every life has been impacted, every single life lost has been a tragedy. Livelihoods have been upended. Frontline services have responded in remarkable ways. And of course, our collective fight to overcome the virus continues. The exceptional circumstances require an exceptional response. This budget provides for a continuity in our urgent work to control the virus and protect our economy and NHS whilst the vaccine is delivered as quickly and as safely as possible. It's not just the pandemic that has taken its toll on Scotland's economy. The wrecking ball of a dismal Brexit deal is compounding matters. 
So today's budget will help to bring much needed support and stability to ensure our economy recovers and we protect those who have been hit the hardest. There is £21 billion sitting in the UK Covid reserve. Our share of that funding would help meet the ongoing needs of our businesses, our NHS and other public services. And in the interests of providing certainty and based on the balance of consequentials received to date, I have made a prudent funding assumption and allocated £500 million against what we expect to flow to us from that Covid reserve next year. This will help make the budget process more transparent and aid parliamentary scrutiny of our funding decisions. I have written to the Chancellor this week setting out the Scottish Government's priorities for the UK budget and seeking clarity and flexibility on several matters of importance to Scotland. Presiding officer, local government has been at the forefront in distributing grants, supporting communities and responding to the pandemic. Last year, the Scottish Government and COSLA agreed the details of a scheme that estimated at £90 million would compensate councils for the loss of income from sales, fees and charges due to the pandemic. Today, I am increasing that allocation to £200 million. When added to the £49 million previously announced, the total support for Council's losses this year is now up to an additional £249 million. I am writing today to the Finance and Constitution Committee with the full 2020-21 allocation details, which confirms that every single penny has been allocated. This is a time for certainty and stability in helping businesses and households as far as we can. With limited resources, we must target those who need our help the most. I am delivering that stability and certainty that taxpayers need, with targeted support at the for the individuals and the businesses most impacted. This is a package of tax measures that will support our recovery and renewal. Significant changes to Scottish income tax were implemented in 2018-19 to deliver a fairer and more progressive five-band system. That structure will remain unchanged, with the starter, basic and higher rates banned, all increasing by inflation. The top rate threshold will remain frozen at £150,000. This will see all Scottish taxpayers pay slightly less income tax next year than they will this year, based on their current income. In addition to this, a majority will continue to pay less income tax than if they lived in other parts of the UK. The UK and the Welsh governments have frozen their non-domestic rates poundage. I don't intend to do the same. Instead, in an unprecedented step, in a non-revaluation year, I am reducing it to 49 pence. That will be the lowest poundage available anywhere in the UK, saving ratepayers over £120 million compared to previously published plans. Let nobody doubt, this is a government that listens and acts when it is most needed. Presiding officer, we have been through so much as a country. Our recovery may be long and it will be hard, and we cannot guarantee that there won't be more tough times ahead. But throughout these dark times, we've never given up hope. Hope for a better future, for a healthier, greener, fairer society. And now, with large-scale vaccination focused firstly on the most vulnerable, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. This budget seeks to build on that hope. And by focusing on how we continue to protect, to recover, to rebuild and to renew our country, it seeks to make that light at the end of the tunnel shine that little bit brighter. Now the process begins to get the budget proposal approved by the Parliament and in place ahead of the election in May. 
Well, there's another election already underway across Scotland. There are two candidates in the running for the vacancy in the Labour leadership caused by the departure of Richard Leonard. Last week we heard from Glasgow MSP Anas Sarwar. This week meet Central Scotland MSP Monica Lennon. She says her priority is to end child poverty within 10 years. Well, it really disappoints me that we've been unable to end child poverty in the Scottish Parliament in the devolution years. And there's been a lot of ambition to really tackle child poverty. But I feel in Scotland that we, we talk a lot and we don't deliver enough. So I've set out some initial proposals about how we could go about this, how we could have the ambition to end child poverty within a decade, to make serious inroads within five years. And there's a lot that we can do. We need to help families by putting more money into their pockets. That's why we should increase the Scottish child payment to up to £30 a week in the next parliamentary term. Um, in terms of the school day, it can be quite expensive to go to school when you add in the cost of uniform and transport. And in many schools now in Scotland, you have to pay for music lessons. And I think that's really unfair. So I want every child to have the best possible start in life. We've seen during the pandemic that the people who've kept this country running are the key workers, the cleaners, the cooks, the nurses, the transport workers. And we need to make sure that every child in Scotland fulfills their potential and can be here for our country in good times and in bad. And children, young people have lost so much during the pandemic. So they deserve the best from, from the parliament. And I think Scottish Labour would um, do well to go back to our roots to fight um, injustice at its root cause. And that's what my leadership bid is all about. When I was saying at what cost, I'm also referring to where would you be sourcing the funding for this? Well, I don't think it's a lack of money that is holding the Scottish Government and the Scottish Parliament back. I think it's a lack of political will. We are a rich country with an abundance of resources, yet you look at communities um, and where a child lives, their postcode determines how well they're going to do in the early years. So I think there is a big job to do to share power and wealth more equally in this country. I think we need to stop cutting essential public services like our schools. So for example, I want to see more classroom assistance under the SNP. They've said education is their top priority, but they've cut teacher numbers. And over the last few years that I've been in Parliament, I've listened to trade unions like Unison, who've talked about what it's like on the front line where councils um, are forced to make cuts and they let go of classroom assistance. We have a lot of children who need additional support with their learning. So I would want to see that as a priority. There's a cost of not doing these things. The cost is human suffering. The cost is rising drug deaths. In Scotland, we now have the worst drug death rate, not just in the UK, but in Europe. We've got thousands of children in the last decade who've lost mothers and fathers, grandparents, siblings and friends to drugs. And that has a huge cost to people as human beings, but it costs our economy, it costs our NHS. So we need to shift budgets around. We need more joined up decision making, more joined up spending, because we have huge inequalities in Scotland that are going ignored. And I think that's where Scottish Labour needs to come into our own because we've had SNP in power for a long time. We've had Tory governments. We're getting more of the same. 
And that's why I'm standing, Charles, because Scottish Labour needs to get our act together. We need to do things differently in Scotland, and I'm standing to be that change candidate. Now, are you going to do things sufficiently differently, Monica, to ensure that if you are leader, that come the election in May, you're going to knock the Scottish Tories back into third place? Yes, absolutely. I'm doing this because I strongly believe that we need to move away from the same old, same old politics where who you know determines how far you get in life. My background is a working class girl in Lanarkshire. I never thought for a minute that I would be standing to, to be an MSP, never mind the leader of Scottish Labour. But my approach to politics is very practical. It's about what is the problem and what needs to happen to fix it. I'm sure I can do that around the terrible scandal of period poverty, the indignity of women and girls not having access to essential period products. People told me that couldn't be done, that that was too ambitious, it was too radical. Well, we now have an act of parliament that is creating uh, change around the world. I spent a lot of time speaking to politicians and activists in other countries. So that's Scotland at its best. That's what the Scottish Parliament can do. But that does require you to work with others. It does require you to sit down with the Tories and try and reach a compromise. It does require you to do that with the SNP and others. So my politics is about, you know, getting out of the comfort zone, really doing things differently and reaching out to people who feel left behind. Is Indiref 2 inevitable? No, nothing's inevitable. I want to pursue what I'm doing right now because I really believe that we have big, big inequalities in our country that we need to take face on and resolve. We're not through the pandemic yet. We're trying to get the vaccine rolled out. Getting the vaccine into people's arms has to be the priority. We need to eliminate COVID-19 and then we need to start to recover and take the country uh, forward in a new direction. But I'm not naive. Um, the issue about independence and Scotland's future in the, the union and the, the constitutional arrangements, these issues are still there. People still have views and have opinions and we all have different opinions. So I've said in this contest, um, if you want a candidate who's not going to talk about that and try and ignore it, then that's not me. I will always listen to people, even people who don't agree with us. I think that's the most important thing that we need to do in politics. Um, I've said that I don't believe in independence and pursuing a referendum is not my priority. I don't think it is the priority for Scotland. But at the end of the day, if in the future people in Scotland say they want to have a referendum, that should be for people in Scotland to decide. And I will never hide behind Boris Johnson or any Prime Minister, because I do believe that the people of Scotland are sovereign. I do believe in self-determination and I do believe that reform of the United Kingdom and of Scotland is required. We're all being told to stay at home. Should Boris Johnson stay in Downing Street and not make what he might think is essential travel to Scotland? I think right now everyone should try and stay at home as, as much as possible. Um, and I'm not sure that it's essential or beneficial for Boris Johnson to, to come to Scotland. Monica Lennon, we will keep in touch through the campaign and hope you'll join us again on the week in Holyrood. For now, many thanks. Thank you. The Prime Minister has been making a flash trip to Scotland. He's here to defend the Union after the 20th poll in a row, says a majority of Scots want to decouple from the UK. The First Minister is calling on the Prime Minister to stay at home instead 
and avoid unnecessary travel, just as she's asking all of us to do. She fears people will see his decision to travel as one rule for the majority and another for those in authority. Nicola Sturgeon says Boris Johnson is not unwelcome here. But I guess if he arrives in Edinburgh, he'll perhaps hear the words, you'll have had your tea. I am not and never would be saying that Boris Johnson is not welcome in Scotland. Uh, He's the Prime Minister of the UK. Uh, But beyond that, everybody's welcome in Scotland. You know, I, I, well, maybe not a certain ex-president that I kind of suggested earlier on, maybe rather didn't come to Scotland, but I, I would divert down that road. Boris Johnson is is not unwelcome in Scotland, even if I had the ability to to stop him. So that's not what this is about. And I don't, yeah, I'd be really disappointed if that's how what I'm about to say is translated. But we are living in a global pandemic. And every day right now, I stand, look down the camera and say what I'm about to say. Boris Johnson does that. I heard him do it as recently as yesterday. Don't travel unless it is really essential. Work from home if you possibly can. And that has to apply to all of us. Now, people like me and Boris Johnson have to be in work for reasons that I think most people understand. But we don't have to travel across the UK uh, as part of that. Is that really essential right now? Because we have a duty to lead by example. And if we are going to suggest that we don't take these rules as seriously as we should, it gets harder to convince other people. So that's why um, I... Perhaps I'm not uh, ecstatic about the thought of the Prime Minister visiting. It's not because he's not welcome. In fact, if I was standing here being political, you could perhaps conclude that I, I would be quite welcoming of him coming to Scotland. But we're in a global pandemic. Let's all remember the importance of these rules and the importance of us. None of us are infallible, as I've demonstrated, uh, but we've all got a duty to lead by example here. My colleague at the Daily Telegraph, Simon Johnson, asked the First Minister further about her views on the Prime Minister visiting Scotland. Clearly, the romance between Nicola and Simon is blooming. Firstly, Simon, don't take this the wrong way. Um, I'm, I'm meaning it partly jocularly, and I, I am, will be delighted if I'm proved wrong in what I'm about to say. But I'm going to take a wild guess and say that on the issue of Boris Johnson's visit, the Daily Telegraph is going to take uh, the side of Boris Johnson uh, and not the side of me in uh, the sort of assessment of whether it is essential or not. But if I'm proved wrong on tomorrow's front page, I'll come here and, 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 and acknowledge it to you in person at the next opportunity. Um, but I'm just, uh, I don't know, I'm just, there's just something that makes me think I'm probably right. Um, and it comes down to what is essential. Um, yes, in normal times, we all do these things and it's right and proper that we do. And that's why I, I use, I'm trying not to make this purely about Boris Johnson coming to Scotland. I'm trying to illustrate this in terms of the decisions we're all making. And I, I deliberately use the example of, because he may well be coming to visit some kind of vaccine related thing. But in Scotland right now, I'm asking myself, is it essential for me to go and visit a vaccine centre? Or not, because in the particular circumstances we're living in right now with an infectious virus and, and this is possibly the most important point, when we are telling other people not to travel when it's not really, 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 really essential, then I think we have an obligation to subject ourselves to the same rigour in deciding what is essential and what is not essential. Nice to do. I, I, would, I would love nothing more and I hope 
you know, before too long I get the opportunity to go and visit every major IC unit in the country to personally thank those who have done so much for us. It would not be responsible or essential for me to do that right now, and it would you know, not be helpful to them. And, and there's loads of examples I could use of things that I would like to do right now. But in a pandemic, when we're saying don't travel unless it's essential, like to do is not the, the barometer, it's not the test. Is it really, really essential? That's the test. And I would say me travelling from Edinburgh to Aberdeen to visit a vaccination centre right now is not essential. And Boris Johnson travelling from London to wherever in Scotland he's going to do the same is not essential. And if we're asking other people to abide by that, then I'm sorry, but I do think it probably is incumbent on us to do likewise. I look forward to that uh, being translated into the front page of the Daily Telegraph tomorrow, um, which I'm, I, I'll even predict what the headline is going to be. Sturgeon says Johnson not welcome in Scotland, which is not what I'm saying, just to be very uh, clear. Later this year in the autumn, Glasgow is scheduled to play host to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26. It was postponed last year, you'll remember, because of, well, why everything is being postponed cancelled or disrupted. Might it be moved again from this year, the First Minister was asked. And what about us having the chance to take mini-breaks or maxi-breaks across Scotland now that foreign travel is likely to be off the table until next year? I think you've just promoted me uh, beyond uh, my existing station. It's not within my gift to cancel COP26. That is uh, a United Nations uh, summit. Um, I very much hope COP26 can go ahead, but clearly, you know, we will, you know, all need to consider the, the position, but it would not be my decision. Um, and uh, whatever happens, and I very much hope it, it is able to proceed, the challenge we all have and the obligation we all have to up our game in tackling climate change has not disappeared uh, because of uh, the pandemic. Um, I'll, Jason may want to say a word about this as well. So I'm, I'm going to, again, uh, deliberately not put dates on this because it's not fair to anybody watching for me to put dates on this that I don't yet know whether uh, they will turn out to be realistic or not. I'll tell you what I hope. I hope that if we, A, suppress the virus again to very low levels in Scotland, which we know we can do, if we then, more effectively than we did last year, put uh, protection around the country to guard against importation, and if we, again, as we know we can do, because we did it uh, last year when we first suppressed the virus, control outbreaks uh, and clusters through test and protect, as I've just been uh, talking to uh, in response to Helen, uh, do even more to support people self-isolating. I hope that that then gives us the ingredients to allow greater ability to have normal, not 100% normal, but more normality domestically within our country. And I hope, but this is the bit I can't tell you exactly when or give you 100% guarantees around, but I hope that would include the possibility of us all being able to support the domestic tourism industry by having maybe breaks elsewhere in Scotland. But there's certain things we have to do to create those conditions. Suppress it through everything we're doing now, stop it coming in, and for government making sure that Test and Protect is working well. If we do all of that, and that does take all of us, then I would hope that staycations in the summer may be something that's possible. 
But I'm not going to stand here today and say that's definitely going to be the case by X date and then everybody goes and books their holidays and for whatever reason it doesn't turn out like that and then rightly you'd be blaming me for booking a holiday that you couldn't have. So let's work our way through this next phase with us being as upfront as possible about what is uh, able to happen and when. Uh, but if we all do these things I'm talking about right now, we do give ourselves the opportunity to have greater normality within our own borders uh, than we have at the moment. That's the prize. And of course, the other the other big factor in that, which I didn't mention earlier on, is vaccination, which is progressing and is helping us to create those conditions for greater normality. You're listening to The Week in Hollywood. I'm Charles Fletcher. And coming up in the next half hour, we go to the Baltics for a Christmas tree tonic. And the Duke of Roxy is here with a special message. Now a West Lothian company called Valneva has started producing its COVID-19 vaccine in Livingston. It's expected to deliver up to 60 million doses by the end of the year. As schools continue to stay out, the vaccine delivery goes on and plans are emerging to quarantine arrivals into Scotland. Let's go into the chamber for questions to the First Minister. Conservative group leader at Holyrood, Ruth Davidson, focuses on vaccination. We all want the vaccination programme to work as quickly and efficiently as possible so that restrictions can be lifted. But there is genuine concern across Scotland at the pace of the rollout. We know that more mass vaccination centres, already set up elsewhere and due to open in Scotland soon, will make a big difference and that's very welcome. We're all hoping that they go to plan. But so far, the First Minister has sought to blame the slow vaccination rate on prioritising care homes. We asked for for care homes to be prioritised way back in November and it is the right thing to do. But it's not an excuse for the slower rollout across the general population. GPs know it and the First Minister knows it too. One Edinburgh GP wrote to us this week to say, I helped deliver thousands of vaccines over the years and I know that different systems are used for care homes and the general public. Another GP confirmed, these jabs are sat there, but they're not getting to us. This argument that the focus is on care homes rather than the over 80s is a red herring. It isn't a choice between the two. These are different cohorts being being vaccinated by different staff. First Minister, are you telling these GPs on the front line that they're wrong? First Minister. Uh, No, but I do think Ruth Davidson is, again, mischaracterising the position to some extent. Uh, I will make no apology for the fact that we did prioritise care homes first, uh, not just because that is what the JCVI uh, recommended we do, but also we know these are people that are most vulnerable. And we see, again, in this second wave of the virus, concerns building about outbreaks and uh, numbers dying in care homes. Uh, We have now virtually completed uh, vaccination of care homes, around 95%. There will be efforts to get that percentage up, but given that in any cohort, particularly with frail older people, it is unlikely to reach 100%, we have effectively completed the vaccination of older residents in care homes. And I think that is important. I was reading, I think, in the Health Service Journal yesterday, concerns about the target for care homes being missed in in England. Now, we are uh, on track, though, to not just meet, but I would hope exceed our targets for the other cohorts that we are now vaccinating. Around uh, half a million people have been vaccinated already in total. She insists that everything is going well. But let's look back at what GPs on the ground are telling us. Earlier this week, a family doctor in Glasgow was blunt. The bottleneck is not people, it is vaccine supply. So let's look at the supply chain. Since Tuesday, the Scottish Government has had around 1 million vaccines available for use. 
It is up to NHS Scotland to get them to health boards. At this stage, and I quote from the SNP's own delivery plan here, next day delivery can be done to health boards. But getting the vaccines from the health board's vaccine holding centres to GPs, quote, normally happens weekly. We're six weeks into the vaccine delivery plan, we're three weeks into the community rollout, and throughout that time, GP after GP has been expressing their frustration at supply issues, all of which the First Minister continues to brush off. They just want it sorted out. When will she do it? First Minister. You see, I'm, I'm not brushing any of these concerns off. I'm answering in detail around what is happening. And I think Ruth Davidson might have more of a point here if we were way off meeting the targets to get through all of these population groups. But we're not. If anything, uh, we are uh, on track to exceed uh, those targets in terms of the vaccine uh, quantity and the numbers that we are, are vaccinating in each uh, category. Now, in terms of supply, and, you know, I'm not going to go into detail about what we covered last week about you know, us uh, publishing the expected supply, the UK government demanding that we took that out of the public domain, but being quite happy to brief these figures uh, through spin to the media. So I've said to my officials, actually, regardless of what they say, I think we'll just go back to publishing the actual supply figures uh, from next week so that we all have uh, transparency around that. And and on the, uh, the figures that Ruth Davison's quoted, as I said to her last week, if you extrapolate those figures from, uh, the, to the UK, then yes, of course, we have allocations of doses. We draw those down. They come into health boards and go to GPs. Um, of the doses that have come into Scotland so far, more than half, uh, way more than half, are already in the arms of people, and the others will be going into the arms of people over the course of the coming days. This allocation we've got, we've got to plan for how we uh, use that to allow us to vaccinate all of the groups that we have prioritised within the timescales that we have set. And I come back to the key point here. I know everybody across the country, all of us, without exception almost, want to get this vaccine as quickly as possible. And I know GPs and other vaccinators want to do it as quickly as possible. But we are on track in terms of the targets we've set uh, and we will continue to make sure that that continues as we get this vaccine to as many people in the adult population as we can, just as quickly as we can. Interim Labour leader... Jackie Bailey. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the World Health Organization has told countries to test, test, test. Yesterday, once again, the First Minister's own advisor, Professor Devi Schreider, couldn't be clearer. The best way to stop the spread of the virus, to avoid rolling lockdowns, is by testing, finding contacts and isolating them. Scotland has a daily testing capacity of 65,000 tests. We could have done 2 million in the past month alone but we've only used 32%. We've known for some time that the First Minister's symptom-led approach to testing is not enough to control the virus. South Korea, Germany, other countries have been using PCR tests for months to find asymptomatic carriers. Even now in England, nearly one in every 100 people are tested daily for COVID-19. Can the First Minister tell the Chamber what the equivalent figure is for Scotland? I don't have that figure to hand. I'll get that figure. But can I say to Jackie Bailey, if the uh, central proposition she's making to me here 
um, is that England have done so much better than Scotland. Why are Scotland's rates of the virus so much lower than England's uh, right now? Now, I don't think this should be some kind of competition. We're all working really hard to control this virus and get rates as low as possible. But Scotland consistently uh, throughout this pandemic has had rates that are too high, in my opinion, but lower than uh, other nations in the UK. Um, certainly England and more recently Wales, the numbers of people dying are far too high and none of us uh, should be comfortable uh, with that. But we are uh, working hard to suppress the virus and we are using testing uh, in an appropriate way to do that, expanding that as we go through. Uh, the numbers that are quoted here, and I've tried to explain this week after week, uh, they are for people with symptoms. And the reason that that uh, quantity is not used every day is that the levels of the virus are thankfully uh, lower than uh, they would be if that uh, volume was being used up to capacity. We're using asymptomatic testing now much more widely uh, through care homes, uh, NHS staff. We're using uh, community asymptomatic testing all of which is helping us uh, to get these rates uh, of the virus down, which is uh, so crucial. So I uh, will never stand here and say that there's not more we can do, that there's not things we should learn, that there's not uh, you know, other advice we should take. You know, I don't stand here and speak for Professor Schroeder, but I speak to Professor Schroeder uh, often. And yes, she advises a range of things. She's been you know, a voice of wisdom throughout this. But, you know, without speaking for her, I also think she uh, thinks that many of the things we're doing in Scotland right now are the right things, um, and we need to keep at them and improve as we go, and that's exactly what we will do. Jackie Bailey. Thank you very much for that response. But, Presiding Officer, let me help the First Minister out with the figure, because it is one in 100 people tested daily in England. In other countries in Europe and the world, they have mass testing programmes. There are many, many more people tested daily. In Scotland, that figure is one in every 250. Even in the last week, Test and Protect averaged only 20,622 tests a day out of a capacity of 65,000. Nearly three quarters were actually repeat tests, people who had already been tested. So let's look at another crucial part of the current system, which is contact tracing and self-isolation. In the week ending 17th of January, Test and Protect failed to reach over 850 positive people within 72 hours of their test. At the start of the month, it was as many as 1,625. And when people are asked to self-isolate, there is no follow-up, there's little support, they get a text, that's it. In some parts of the world where proper support is on offer, as many as 95% are managing to follow self-isolation rules. So can I ask the First Minister, can she tell us, what is the equivalent figure in Scotland? Uh, look, I'm happy to give equivalent figures. I can you know, provide them later on. I, I think it's really important that we engage in the issues here. And there's two issues um, that I think are really important to take up here. Jackie Bailey says it's terrible that uh, there was only you know, 20,000 tested, tested as opposed to 50,000. This is symptomatic testing. If that 20,000 figure had been 50 or 60,000, that would have mean that our rates of the virus were three uh, times what they actually are. Uh, it is a good thing that those with symptoms uh, are fewer, so that there are fewer people with symptoms coming forward for testing. That means that we are succeeding in starting 
to suppress the virus. And that is just a really fundamental point that I think has to be uh, understood. And, you know, if it is the case that, you know, England's uh, greater uh, number per 100 population being tested than Scotland's is the be-all and end-all, then you would expect England's virus rates to be lower than Scotland's. But they're not. They are significantly higher than Scotland's. So I, I'll never stop trying to listen and learn about how we can do these things better. But the idea that we're somehow just getting it all wrong doesn't actually bear out when we look at our relative position uh, compared to others. And on uh, self-isolation, Jackie Bailey is just downright wrong on this. When you are contacted to be told to self-isolate, if you agree uh, to have your details passed on to the local council, you get a follow-up call uh, to, to triage uh, your situation, to find out if you've got particular needs. We've given councils additional resources so that if somebody needs practical help in addition to the financial help through the uh, self-isolation support grant up to and including accommodation that is available. We will uh, very shortly set out some further plans to extend uh, the support that is available to people self-isolating, but it is simply not true to say that there is no support available for people. So, you know, these are uh, the facts of the situation and we'll continue to work hard to improve as we go. Jackie Bailey. Um, I'm always grateful when the First Minister says she's prepared to listen and learn because exactly the point I'm making is that the testing capacity that is there should be used for asymptomatic testing as well. And I don't think she's currently doing that. And can I say to her, I'm bringing the real experience of people who are self-isolating into the chamber. They're telling me they're getting little support. And she knows herself, a third of the people who applied for the self-isolation grant didn't get it at all. But presiding officer, again, I didn't hear an answer to my question. So I'm happy to help the first minister out again. Only 18% of people in Scotland are able to follow self-isolation rules. That's fewer than one in five people. So it's a pity the Scottish Government's performance can't be matched by the First Minister's spin. Because 11 months into this pandemic, this Government has been slow to test, slow to trace, slow to support people who are self-isolating. And whilst the vaccine gives us hope, experts tell us that COVID will be here for some time to come. To lift current restrictions and not up, end up in a third wave and another lockdown, we need a functioning test, trace and isolate system. That is not what we have in Scotland today. Last year, community testing pilots uncovered hundreds of asymptomatic cases in just a fortnight. But instead of the promised wide-scale rollout, the government is still only in the planning phase. If we're going to get this virus under control, we need mass testing in all of our communities. So can the First Minister tell me, when is this going to happen? Or are we going to be back here in a few weeks, quoting the same expert advice, asking the same questions, and with more lives lost? First Minister. To listen to Jackie Bailey, you wouldn't think we actually had the lowest levels of COVID in the whole of the UK in Scotland. Uh, but they are too high and therefore we will continue to do more. We did do uh, pilots of asymptomatic testing before Christmas. We're about to roll out a number of community asymptomatic uh, initiatives. Uh, we're about to uh, do asymptomatic testing in more industrial settings. I 
checking with the health secretary. I'm not sure there may even be one in Jackie Bailey's own constituency. There's a testing centre in Jackie Bailey's uh, own uh, constituency, or maybe a mobile testing uh, unit in her constituency. So we use testing uh, appropriately. We will continue to do that, and we will continue to extend that. It frankly does a real disservice uh, to the people who are working uh, so hard in Test and Protect to say it's not functional. It is functional, it's functioning well, and they have my gratitude for that. For the Scottish Lib Dems, Willie Rennie. The First Minister did claim that we were slower than England at first because we did the hard-to-do care homes first. That argument does not wash. According to a new survey, England and Scotland are now in the same place on care home vaccination. But the gap is still around 140,000 for everyone else. That's how many people would have had the vaccine by now if Scotland had kept pace with England. And every day a vaccine is left in a vial is another day that a person is left exposed to the threat of this deadly virus. And with 100,000 lives lost, we can't afford slippages like this anymore. So it's not care homes. And the First Minister says it's not to do with the ordering system. So why are we so far behind England? First Minister. We're on track not just to meet the targets we've set to vaccinate groups of the population. We're going to probably exceed those targets. Uh, 60% of uh, over 80s already, the vast majority, I anticipate, by the start of the week, all by the end of next week. Over 70s, clinically extremely vulnerable, some under 70s will start to be vaccinated next week. We set these targets uh, and we're meeting those targets. And, you know, I, I'm sorry that uh, people don't uh, agree that we should have prioritised care homes uh, early. Um, I think we were right to do that. And I don't know what survey... I don't know what survey uh, Willie Rennie is quoting, but if England has now caught up with us in care homes, that's good news. But the fact is we were ahead in terms of care homes and now we are uh, getting through the other groups. So if we were missing these targets, uh, I could understand uh, the criticisms that are being made. Uh, we are putting in place a programme that is uh, working through the cohorts as clinically recommended, is doing so appropriately and sustainably, uh, and we'll continue to do that. At no stage did I say that we should not prioritise care home first. Let's get that straight. What we are saying is the First Minister should not use the care homes to hide the fact that the Scottish Government have not kept up pace with the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, yesterday, Professor Linda Ball criticised the lack of preparation for the second wave. She went on to urge the government to get ready now, increase PCR testing to catch more people with the virus. Last week, I reported that the government had failed to use one million gold standard PCR tests since Christmas. This week, it's even worse. The number is now 1.2 million tests not used. The government is sometimes only using a quarter of the capacity. Isn't it time to turn that around? I know she doesn't want to listen to me, but will she at least listen to Professor Bald and use these tests? Why is the First Minister ignoring the advice of such a professor. 
First Minister. I, I know I have got huge respect for Linda Bald. I listen to her very closely, as I do Professor Schrader, because not only do they give good advice, they don't mischaracterise uh, the position uh, that is actually the reality. Um, I, I don't believe that Willie Rennie really misunderstands the approach to testing, but I think he continues to sort of pretend he misunderstands it in order to bandy about figures like one million unused tests. We use the PCR testing capacity principally for symptomatic cases so that they can be uh, caught and uh, diagnosed and then put into self-isolation with their contacts uh, contacted to isolate as well. And the reason that uh, the symptomatic cases are not uh, meeting the capacity we've got for that is that the levels of virus are thankfully lower than that. But we are extending the use of PCR testing to asymptomatic uh, uses, just as we are using lateral flow devices, uh, community projects, industrial projects, uh, asymptomatic testing amongst care home staff, amongst uh, visitors to care homes, amongst NHS staff. We are piloting approaches for asymptomatic testing uh, using both PCR and lateral flow devices in schools to help us as we uh, hopefully transition soon to get children uh, back to school. So we're doing all of these things um, and we're doing it in a way that makes sense, taking uh, account of the very, very good advice that we get from people like Professor Bald and Professor Schrader. Speaking for the Greens this week, Patrick Harvey. Whether we think it's essential travel or not, the Prime Minister is visiting Scotland just days after the number of deaths from COVID in the UK reached the grim milestone of 100,000. It's among the worst death rates in the world. Across both governments and the whole political spectrum, we share a deep regret. We also share responsibility. While Boris Johnson claims that everything that could have been done was done, the First Minister has acknowledged that mistakes have been made, including sticking too closely to the UK's position on international travel. Does this regret go further? Have there been other choices where the First Minister accepts what seems clear to me that the desire for a four-nations approach held us back, whether it was locking down too late, opening up too early, in the economic response or in the test, trace and isolate systems. First Minister. Um, so, firstly, the milestone that was passed in the UK for numbers of people dying this week is, is grim, and it should be something that uh, lives with and haunts and... Uh, you know, is imprinted on the, the minds and hearts of everybody uh, who has been a decision maker in this. Um, I am very clear that I and my government have tried every single day to do everything we possibly can, but nobody, uh, and of course the, the death rate in Scotland, far too high, is slightly lower than it is uh, in other parts of the UK or as, uh, in the UK as a whole, but it's still far too high. Uh, so we try to do everything every day, but nobody can look at these figures and conclude that every day we succeeded. And that, uh, I think, demands a frankness uh, from all of us. Now, I've... Uh, already reflected on some of the things if I could turn the clock back I would do differently now some of those is applying the benefit of hindsight so it's you know other people can judge whether it's fair to call these things mistakes but in addition to that mistakes will have been made so the things I agonize about are you know did we lock down early enough uh, with relative rates of infection, we locked down, although at the same time 
in terms of the relative stages of infection, probably slightly earlier in effect than, than England did. But was that early enough? Uh, you know, we, of course, uh, had constraints in terms of the economic packages that required to be put in place. Um, I agonise over border control. Should we have done more, uh, even when uh, the UK government didn't want to? And I think that's a lesson we need to learn and apply in the weeks to come. So, you know, I'm not going to ever stand here and pretend that we did everything that we possibly could and that we didn't get anything wrong, because I don't think that is the case. Um, but I, I think it's really important that we learn as we go with this and we make sure that where we did think we get, got things wrong, we put that right in future. And I will try to do that. The final point I would make is that while I can reflect and offer, as I just have done, thoughts on things that I wish we could have done differently, it's not ultimately for me or people like me to mark our own homework. That's why in the fullness of time, uh, a full public inquiry into all of these issues is necessary and appropriate. Now, if you've ever worried about the environment and wondered what to do with those Christmas trees when the season is over, look towards the Baltic states. An Estonian distillery is producing its tonic with a taste of Christmas. The drink is made from infused pine needles mixed with cardamom and lemon peel, and the end result is a delicate bittersweet soda. This report is compiled by Janis Lysans for Euronews. Christmas trees, not just a festive feast for the eyes, it seems, they can taste pretty good too. When the holiday season ends, some trees from around the Baltic region are shipped to this family firm on the Estonian island of Sarimaa, to be recycled into a spruce-flavoured tonic. It's made from crushed and infused pine needles mixed with cardamom and lemon peel. The end result is a delicate, bittersweet soda, enriched with a Christmassy aroma, and it's good for your health. Uh, spruce is really known across the Nordics. Uh, for centuries it has been used, and it's... Uh, it's really good for the vitamins and minerals. It has a lot of vitamin C and vitamin D in it. And, of course, these times when people are trying to fight the pandemics, it's even more in demand. Three years ago, the company recycled its first Christmas tree from a local town hall square. Then they recovered one from the Estonian mainland. Now spruces are being picked up from town squares in the Finnish capital Helsinki and the Latvian resort town of Jermala. Uh, well, I think it's a uh, rather interesting idea. It's something new, but uh, the idea about giving Christmas trees a second life uh, sounds very great. But not all of some 50 million Christmas trees that adorn Europe every year can end up in these bottles. The smaller indoor variety found in homes across the continent are often too dried out. Their larger cousins, erected in Nordic town centres, retain more moisture and make for better ingredients for this unique beverage. One spruce can be used to produce up to 10,000 litres of tonic water filled with Christmas spirits. Janis Lysans, Euronews. At this time of year, we remember the Holocaust, and the Duke of Rothsey, Prince Charles, reminds us why we must always do so. As I speak, the last generation of living witnesses is tragically passing from this world. So the task of bearing witness falls to us. That is why the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, of which I am so proud to be patron, has this year chosen the theme, Be the Light in the Darkness. This is not a task for one time only, 
nor is it a task for one generation or one person. It is for all people, all generations, and all time. This is our time when we can, each in our own way, be the light that ensures the darkness can never return. Radio.